0: You want to get out of the hole you dug yourselves? Well, the first step is to stop digging. It's high noon for friday december 17th 2021 follow the podcast on the telegram messenger app at t.me slash i'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash i'm reasonable you can also find me on gab and getter at i'm your moderator the sub stack is i'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancel or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture Today is the 331st day of Barack Obama's third term, as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who was overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You started to figure out that... Everything they told you is wrong, but your solution is to just believe harder. And if that has started to make you feel a little bit crazy, a little bit unstable, a little bit like reality might be fading away from your perception, well, the good news is there's a solution. The solution is to just let go. Just let go of the whole story you were told, the whole story you repeated, the same story that you used as the basis to try to destroy people's lives and your own relationships. I know it's going to hurt a little bit right in the ego. But the truth is, it's only going to hurt more later. So do it now. Just get rid of all the stupid and evil communist ideas, figure out a way. To go out and make amends with all those people you have shamed and bullied and slandered and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs. All those people you cast out and exiled. All those friends and family members you've told can't be around you or can't be around other family members because you are the great protector. It's going to be hard. I understand because you always imagined yourself as the very smart and very moral and very serious person that it turns out you simply are not. And admitting that to people you have been horrible to is going to be difficult. But the thing is, you can do it and it is only going to get worse. So do it now and then just migrate back to America where all of us will receive you with open arms because we want more Americans involved in the project Of America, the project of human liberty and self-governance. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Friday, high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, and it's important for me to remind you that although I enjoy mocking and ridiculing all of the very stupid and evil ideas you continue to promote I am nonetheless doing this for your benefit because I want you to be American again, but by all means continue to call me a conspiracy theorist and dig your hole deeper. You are only changing your own personal outcome because the overall outcome in reality is only headed in one direction. Only one horse is going to win the race and it ain't the one you bet on. So, Yesterday in the afternoon, we get this headline from the Daily Mail. And of course, this is reported all over the place, but I believe that the Daily Mail was kind of first on it. CDC warns Americans not to get J&J shot over blood clot risk following nine deaths. Panel unanimously recommends more effective Pfizer or Moderna vaccines instead. Pharma giant says it remains confident. Most Americans should be given the Pfizer or Moderna mRNA vaccines instead of the Johnson & Johnson shot that can cause rare but serious blood clots, U.S. health advisors recommended Thursday. The strange clotting problem has caused nine confirmed deaths after J&J vaccinations, while the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines don't come with that risk and also appear to be more effective, advisors to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said. It's an unusual move, and the CDC's director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, must decide whether to accept the panel's advice. (laughs) This is, okay, so I didn't mean to pause this early, but that is just amazing, right? So the panel of experts finds nine deaths from blood clotting due to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which... By the way, may well be the first time they have admitted that anyone has died from any of these vaccines, even though VAERS's number is like 10,000. And we talked the other day about how estimates have it quite a lot higher than that, maybe up to nearly 400,000. But they're blaming this problem on Johnson and Johnson only, pretending that this problem does not exist for the other vaccines when we know absolutely it does. And so the panel has decided to warn against taking Johnson & Johnson. I mean, unless it's the only thing available, if you can't get one of the very good and very safe and very effective mRNA vaccines, then it's still a good idea to take Johnson & Johnson. Because you know how dangerous COVID is. 800,000 Americans have died. And we are all supposed to believe that because they can say that number over and over and over and over again, the likelihood of any individual person who is just normally living their lives, who is of, you know, below senior citizen age and relatively healthy, where the numbers turn into one in 10,000, one in 100,000, one in a million if you're a child, those numbers should be ignored. The only number to focus on is 800,000 Americans have died, and that should convince you that covid might be the most dangerous thing ever. I mean, not so dangerous that I can't do the podcast all week while having it, but extremely dangerous. It is so extremely dangerous that you should still get the vaccine that they are warning you against if you can't get one of the other vaccines. And so they make this recommendation. It gets reported worldwide, and it is a clear attempt to knock out the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and get everyone focused on accepting the mRNA shot because they want you on the experimental gene therapy. But this isn't a full CDC recommendation yet, not until the very serious and very smart and very, very honest Rochelle Walensky decides that, Her bureaucracy, the one that she ostensibly runs, even though she is just a hack for the pharma companies, obviously, decides to go along with it. She basically gets the final say, apparently, about whether or not the CDC will accept the panel's advice. Until now, the U.S. has treated all three COVID-19 vaccines available to Americans as an equal choice since large studies found they all offered strong protection and early supplies were limited. Got that? So all the vaccines that turn out not to do anything all offered strong protection at the beginning and early supplies, I guess, of the mRNA vaccines, not vaccines, obviously experimental gene therapies, those supplies were limited. So based on the limited supplies, Johnson and Johnson was very safe and very effective then. You got that? It's good to know that the supply goes into their thinking. J&J's vaccine initially was welcomed as a single dose option that could be especially important for hard to reach groups like homeless people who might not get the needed second dose of the Pfizer or Moderna options. Does anyone believe this nonsense? I mean, what in the world? They're making decisions about how many doses of a vaccine you need based on whether or not homeless people would have a hard time getting it. Isn't it incredible that they can always tell you some group of people that won't have access to the thing? So the science must change based on equity concerns. And, you know, thank goodness they're. Looking out for homeless people this much, I mean, homeless people have had so many COVID outbreaks, except, you know, I guess they haven't really had any, have they? Has anyone heard of an outbreak among the homeless? Shocking, isn't it? But the CDC's advisor said Thursday that it was time to recognize a lot has changed since vaccines began rolling out a year ago. More than 200 million Americans are considered fully vaccinated for now including about 16 million who got the J&J shot. And in case you missed it, the Daily Mail article actually has that sentence in there again. Slightly different. Very interesting. (laughs) That fact was so important they had to print it twice. The other two vaccines used in the U.S. from Pfizer and Moderna account for the vast majority of vaccine doses administered in the country. The CDC experts say that two mRNA vaccines do not have the same risk. And unlike in the spring, when vaccine supplies were tight, Pfizer and Moderna shots now are plentiful in the U.S. That's right. They grow on trees. The J&J shot also shows signs of being much less effective against the Omicron variant. And a booster is recommended just two months after the dose, opposed to six months for Pfizer and Moderna. Oh, no. It's not effective enough against the Omicron variant. I guess we better get more booster shots of the other kind. Oh, wait a second. Could this be because they need a way to convince people who got Johnson & Johnson that they shouldn't get Johnson & Johnson again and instead should get on the Pfizer and Moderna booster shot program? Interesting. COVID-19 itself can cause potentially deadly blood clots. Ah, yes, that has been the major killer from COVID. And uh, I wonder how many of those potentially deadly blood clot cases have come from COVID in the vaccinated. That would be extremely interesting. I wonder if they could provide statistics on this. Of course, they won't. And there's no data in this article anywhere, but that's not a problem. But the suspect culprit for the vaccine-related kind is a rogue immune response linked to both the J&J shot and a COVID-19 vaccine made by AstraZeneca. Both of those vaccines are made similarly, using a cold virus known as an adenovirus, though AstraZeneca's shot is not used in the U.S. The FDA this week warned that another dose of the J&J vaccine shouldn't be given to anyone who developed a clot following either a J&J or AstraZeneca shot. It's crazy because they keep saying that these issues are extremely rare, but when they talk about them, they don't make them sound that rare. Isn't that odd? It's almost like they're not saying true things. At issue is a weird kind of blood clot that forms in unusual places, such as veins that drain blood from the brain and in patients who also develop abnormally low levels of the platelets that form clots. Symptoms of the unusual clots, dubbed thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome, include severe headaches a week or two after the J&J vaccination, not right away, as well as abdominal pain and nausea. Several other countries already have recommended age restrictions for both the AstraZeneca and J&J vaccines, or that preference be given to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Isn't that great? The whole world health community has decided that Johnson & Johnson has made enough money on vaccines, and it was a nice run they had, but the truth is everyone needs the mRNA in them right now. So Pfizer and Moderna, the companies closest to Anthony Fauci's heart, are going to just take it from here. Now, there's a truly amazing piece of propaganda in the Atlantic from yesterday The CDC's flawed case for wearing masks in school by David Zweig. The debate over child masking in schools boiled over again this fall, even above its ongoing high simmer. The approval in late October of COVID-19 vaccines for five to 11 year olds was for many public health experts, an indication that mask mandates could finally be lifted. Oh, yes, it's exactly what all the very serious people were waiting for. Yet with cases on the rise in much of the country, along with anxiety regarding the Omicron variant, other experts and some politicians have warned that plans to pull back on the policy should be put on hold. Scientists generally agree, according to the research literature, wearing masks can help protect people from the coronavirus. But the precise extent of that protection, particularly in schools, remains unknown. And it might be very small. You got that? So that right there, according to David Zweig, is the science, okay? He is literally attempting to restate the science that supports the wearing of masks. And listen to how many times he attempts to couch his statement. So, that there is nothing definitive in this sentence whatsoever. Okay. First, scientists generally agree. First off, that simply isn't true, and it ultimately doesn't matter. They either work or do not work. The answer to the question of whether or not masks work has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not they can find enough scientists who claim to agree. According to the research literature, okay, what literature? The scientists agree according to the literature? Well, that's not them agreeing about whether or not masks work. If you're agreeing According to the literature, then aren't you just agreeing or disagreeing with what the literature says? And the truth is that the literature does not say that masks work. Again, this is brain dead. Wearing masks can help protect people from the coronavirus. Can, okay, already another couched term, not do, and then it's help. This sentence, if written definitively, or this segment of the sentence would say wearing masks protects people from the coronavirus. But they don't say that. Wearing masks can help protect people from the coronavirus. But the precise extent of that protection, particularly in schools, remains unknown. So after more than 18 months Of this ridiculous mask bullshit being forced upon society, the extent to which these masks do anything remains unknown, even though we are constantly told by the expert class and the propagandists at the Atlantic that masks do work. The extent to which they work apparently remains unknown and it might be very small. Imagine talking this way about something you actually firmly believed and could prove. No one would ever do that. And we have this strange idea that has kind of been inculcated into our culture and we get convinced to believe it, that these couching terms, right, all these ways to project doubt and skepticism are actually beneficial to the central claim. It makes the person sound more reasonable and more measured. They don't want to just come out and say that masks do work because obviously they don't and anyone would know that, but they still want to imply that masks work. So they use all these waffling terms to convince people that somehow this is the serious way of addressing the efficacy of masking. What data do exist have been interpreted into guidance in many different ways. The World Health Organization, for example, does not recommend masks for children under six. The European Center for Disease Prevention and Control recommends against the use of masks for any children in primary school. And isn't that interesting? I wonder if they're just very bad people or if they have different data or maybe the masks work different depending on where you are and how old you are. But yet the very serious, very educated, very astute readers of the Atlantic can't get to the bottom of whether or not that paragraph is just rampant, brain dead nonsense. Seen in this context, the CDC has taken an especially aggressive stance, recommending that all kids two and older should be masked in school. The agency has argued for this policy amid an atmosphere of persistent backlash and skepticism. But on September 26th, its director, Rochelle Walensky, marched out a stunning new statistic, speaking as a guest on CBS's Face the Nation She cited a study published two days earlier, which looked at data from about a thousand public schools in Arizona. The ones that didn't have mask mandates, she said, were 3.5 times as likely to experience COVID outbreaks as the ones that did. This estimated effect of mask requirements, far bigger than others in the research literature would become a crucial talking point in the weeks to come. On September 28th, during a White House briefing, Walensky brought up the 3.5 multiplier again. Then she tweeted it that afternoon. In mid-October, with the school year in full swing, Walensky brought up the same statistic one more time. But the Arizona study at the center of the CDC's back-to-school blitz turns out to have been profoundly misleading. You can't learn anything about the effects of school mask mandates from this study. Jonathan Ketchum, a public health economist at Arizona State University, told me his view echoed the assessment of eight other experts who reviewed the research and with whom I spoke for this article. Masks may well help prevent the spread of covid. Some of these experts told me, oh, wait a second. Hold on. Hold on. Not all of the experts told you that masks may help. I mean. What? What? I thought the experts agreed that masks do help. Not that there was some discussion about whether or not they may help. Man, I'm learning so much from this Atlantic article. Imagine being the kind of rock dumb communist who still reads this and is like, oh, wow, I was right all along about masks maybe or maybe not working. (laughs) Wow, man, this stuff is unbelievable. Could you imagine how mushy your brain would have to be after reading article after article like this and trying to believe everything in it? You would not be able to have a coherent thought about anything. And it turns out that's exactly what happens. And that's exactly how so many people, probably 25 to 30% of the country, still believes that there is some chance Joe Biden went out and got 81 million real legal American votes. This is the kind of nonsense you have to be able to stuff all into your tiny child brain without it exploding to believe that Joe Biden actually won the election. Masks may well help prevent the spread of COVID. Some of these experts told me. And there may well be contexts in which they should be required in schools. Oh, well, why don't you make some up? Okay, lay them on me. Let's find out which contexts this would make any sense in. But the data being touted by the CDC, which showed a dramatic more than tripling of risk for unmasked students, ought to be excluded from this debate. The Arizona studies lead authors stand by their work and so does the CDC, but the critics were forthright in their harsh assessments. Noah Haber, an interdisciplinary scientist and co-author of a systematic review of COVID-19 mitigation policies called the research, quote, so unreliable that it probably should not have been entered into the public discourse, end quote. But yet the country's premier public health authority. The director of that organization did not consider anything in the study to be a problem. She liked the result, so she spread it. And this also isn't about mask use. It's about mask mandates. This is just crazy that anyone takes any of these people seriously at all. This is not the only study cited by Walensky in support of masking students, but it's among the most important, having been deployed repeatedly to justify a policy affecting millions of children and having been widely covered in the press. The agency's decision to trumpet the study's dubious findings and subsequent lack of transparency raise questions about its commitment to science-guided policy. And I gotta say, thank goodness this is the first piece of information that the CDC may have accepted despite the fact that it is anti-scientific nonsense. And then they, you know, went out and told everybody about it. And now people actually believe this nonsense and use it as guidance. It's so great that this is the first time that's ever happened. The Arizona study, published in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, looked at school-associated outbreaks in Maricopa and Pima counties, comparing rates across schools with and without mask mandates for students and staff. The school year starts very early in Arizona, in mid-July, so we had the advantage of being able to get an early look at data, one of the lead authors, J. Mack McCullough, told the New York Times. The early look revealed that just 16 outbreaks had occurred among the 210 schools that had a mask mandate in place from the start of classes versus 113 among the 480 schools that had no mandates at all. According to McCullough and his colleagues, this amounted to a 3.5 fold increase in incidence of outbreaks for the no mandate schools. And yeah, wow, that calculation sounds super scientific. They really controlled for all the potential biases and differences that they might be encountering. Back to the article. Yet the study's methodology and data set appear to have significant flaws. The trouble begins with the opening lines of the paper where the authors say they evaluated the association between school mask policies and school associated COVID-19 outbreaks during July 15th to August 31st, 2021. After reviewing school calendars and speaking with several school administrators in Maricopa and Pima counties, I found that only a small proportion of the schools in the study were open at any point during July. Some didn't begin class until August 10th. Others were open from July 19th or July 21st. That means students in the latter group of schools had twice as much time, six weeks instead of three weeks in which to develop a COVID outbreak. It's strange, isn't it, that the director of the cdc wasn't able to analyze that study as well as this atlantic propagandist could when i brought this issue to megan jen the study's corresponding author and an epidemiologist at arizona state university she acknowledged that exposure times varied across schools the ones without mask mandates were open longer overall she told me but the difference was too small to matter their median start date was August 3rd versus August 5th for the schools that did have mask mandates. In a follow up correspondence, Jen and McCullough wrote, quote, It is highly improbable that this difference alone could explain the strong association observed between mask policies and school outbreaks. End quote. Yet Ketchum said that a comparison of median start dates is insufficient. If schools with mask mandates had fewer school days during the study, he told me, that alone could explain the difference in outbreaks. Ketchum and others also criticized the Arizona studies use of school-related outbreaks rather than cases per student per week as the relevant outcome. The authors defined an outbreak as being two or more COVID cases among students or staff members at a school within a 14-day period that are epidemiologically linked. The measure of two cases in a school is problematic, Louise Ann McNutt, a former Epidemic Intelligence Service officer for the CDC and an epidemiologist at the State University of New York at Albany, told me, it doesn't tell us that transmission occurred in school. And that's a quote. She pointed to the fact that according to Maricopa County guidelines, students are considered close contacts of an infected student and thus subject to potential testing and quarantine only if they or that infected student. Were unmasked. And that makes sense because that's just how the science works. You only count problems if the people aren't doing what they're told. As a result, students in Maricopa County schools with mask mandates may have been less likely than students in schools without mandates to get tested following an initial exposure. This creates what's known as a detection bias, she said, which could grossly affect the study's findings. And detection bias is one of those very complicated ideas that only the scientists understand, except apparently the director of the CDC. Jenna McCullough called it highly speculative to make the assumption that identified close contacts are more likely to be tested than other students. You got that? So even though the policy is different, it's highly speculative to point out that difference. McNutt believes that masks are an important prevention tool in the pandemic, but she maintained that the Arizona study doesn't answer the specific question it purports to answer, whether mask mandates for students reduce spread of SARS-CoV-2. There are other issues, too. Jason Abeluck An economics professor at Yale and the lead investigator on a 340,000 person randomized trial of masking in Bangladesh called the Arizona study ridiculous for failing to control for the vaccination status of staff or students. Oh, so there's another problem. The vaccination status is a problem, too. You got that? If more people had been immunized at the schools with mask mandates, or if those schools were more likely to have other mitigation measures in place, such as improved ventilation, then they likely would have seen fewer outbreaks regardless. According to the paper, data on vaccination coverage were unavailable on a per school basis. So how many problems are we up to now? Three, four? Even basic elements of the data set inspire some concerns. According to the paper, 782 of the 999 public non-charter schools included in the study were in Maricopa County. In response to a public records request, the Arizona Department of Education sent me what it said was the same list of schools that had been provided to the researchers with 891 relevant entries for Maricopa. But closer inspection revealed that about 40 of them were virtual learning academies about 20 were preschools, and about 90 were vocational programs associated with otherwise listed schools. That left at most roughly 740 schools for inclusion in the study, not 782. If dozens of entries were inappropriately included in the final data set, were outbreaks counted for them too? But no worries, the CDC director probably has a way of explaining all this. Starting at the end of October, I reached out to Jen and MMWR about the number of schools and repeatedly asked for the list of those included in the study. I also asked about the fact that schools with mask mandates and those without mandates opened at different times. Neither the journal nor the study's authors agreed to share the list of schools or any other data from the study. The journal replied, MMWR is committed to quickly correcting errors when they are identified. We reviewed the specific items that you describe below and found no errors. This week, the authors finally shared their narrowed-down list of Maricopa schools as used for the study. Yet it still included at least three schools in Pima County, along with at least one virtual academy, one preschool, and more than 80 entries for vocational programs that are not actual schools. In response to a follow-up inquiry, they acknowledged having included the online school by mistake, while attributing any other potential misclassifications to the Arizona Department of Education. You got that? So there are at least seven or eight obvious errors with how they conducted their study, but if there were, then it was the Arizona Department of Education's fault, and the science is still perfect. A media relations manager from the lead authors university told me that, quote, the data used for this study were entirely appropriate for the study's objectives, end quote, and that, quote, doctors Jen and McCullough stand by the methodology and results from the data analysis of the 999 schools included in the study. The extent of the benefits of wearing masks for preventing COVID remains uncertain, but it's wrong to say we don't know anything at all. One thing you can extrapolate well is that masks have some effect, Haber told me. But the level of effectiveness depends on an enormous array of very important factors, and high-quality direct evidence is difficult to come by, particularly for schools. And isn't that amazing? Something that we have been told is a crucial and effective mitigation technique for the last 20 months is still totally unproven and high quality direct evidence is difficult to come by so how does haber justify that first part that we can extrapolate well that masks have some effect Given its apparent flaws, the Arizona study would seem to bear out Haber's point, offering little evidence, one way or another, on whether mask mandates work in schools or to what degree. Even taken at face value, though, its findings don't appear to fit with those from other research. Abaluck's huge, randomized trial of mask use in rural Bangladeshi villages, for example, estimated just an 11% reduction in confirmed symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection among adults wearing surgical masks and relatively little evidence of any effect for cloth masks. Another more similar study published in MMWR in May, looked at case rates among more than 90,000 students in Georgia, comparing those at schools with and without mask mandates. It found that the incidence of COVID was 37% lower in schools where staff were required to wear masks and 21% lower in schools where that rule applied to kids. The latter difference was not statistically significant, and the authors noted that the data, quote, cannot be used to infer causal relationships, end quote. Now compare those numbers with the headline finding from the Arizona study touted repeatedly by Walensky that a lack of school masking mandates more than tripled the risk of outbreaks. A number of the experts interviewed for this article said the size of the effect should have caused everyone involved in preparing, publishing and publicizing the paper to tap the brakes. Instead, they hit the gas. Given that data were collected through August 31st, the authors had just a few weeks to complete their analysis and finalize their manuscript before MMWR put it out on September 24th. Walensky tweeted out the research four days later. As the CDC's outlet for scientific reports, MMWR has long been crucial for assessing and documenting outbreaks of disease up to and including this pandemic. Yet it's also been a source of steady controversy. As Politico reported in September 2020, officials in the Trump administration tried to influence MMWR releases so that its messaging on COVID would align with the president's. Career staffers expended, quote, great effort. To resist this influence and uphold MMWR's scientific integrity, a former official told the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis. Yet under the Biden administration, the agency has not always been apolitical. In May, it was revealed... That the American Federation of Teachers, the nation's second largest teachers union, had private exchanges with CDC officials prior to new school guidance being issued under Walensky's tenure. And some of the union's suggestions were added nearly verbatim. In September, on the same day as the Arizona study's publication, Walensky overruled her agency's advisory committee by endorsing the use of covid vaccine booster shots for teachers and other workers deemed at high risk of exposure, thereby aligning the CDC more closely with President Joe Biden's position. Still, the publication and agency endorsement of the Arizona study is especially demoralizing. How did research with so many obvious flaws make its way through all the layers of internal technical review? And why was it promoted so aggressively by the agency's director? I reached out to Walensky's office to ask about the study, noting its evident limitations and outlier result. How, if at all, does this research figure into the agency's continuing guidance for schools around the country? The CDC did not respond to my inquiries. With Biden in the White House, the CDC has promised to follow the science in its COVID policies. Yet the circumstances around the Arizona study seem to show the opposite. Dubious research has been cited after the fact, without transparency, in support of existing agency guidance. Research requires trust in the ability to verify work, Ketchum, the ASU public health economist told me. That's the heart of science. The saddest part of this is the erosion of trust. And just to read this first sentence, this last paragraph again. With Biden in the White House, the CDC has promised to follow the science in its COVID policies. Well, first off, what was it doing before? Because we were told that they were following the science the entire time. And to scale it back a little further, isn't the CDC the science in the first place? I mean, isn't that where we get the science from the CDC and from... The Oracle of Science, Nazi Dr. Anthony Fauci. I mean, that's the science. But the CDC is also committed to following the science, except when they don't want to follow the science. And instead, they want to follow whatever the teachers unions say. And then they just backfill some made up science to make it all sound legitimate. And I guess that this article is allowed to survive online. I wonder if you can post it on Facebook or Instagram, because the CDC disagrees with this article. So is this article spreading medical disinformation? That's what I want to know. And of course, obviously, the article is spreading medical disinformation, but not in the way, not in the direction that they usually get upset about. Now, here's some more grade A, the science. This is from the Washington Free Beacon yesterday, December 16th. The headline Biden administration offers bonuses to doctors who implement anti-racism plans. This is Aaron Sebarium in the Washington Free Beacon. The Biden administration will offer bonuses to doctors who create and implement an anti-racism plan under new rules from the Department of Health and Human Services, a move meant to update Medicare payments to, quote, reflect changes in medical practice, end quote. Effective January 1st, Medicare doctors can boost their reimbursement rates by conducting a clinic-wide review of their practice's commitment to anti-racism. The plan should cover value statements and clinical practice guidelines, according to HHS, and define race, ready? This is a quote. They define race as, quote, a political and social construct, not a physiological one. End quote. A dichotomy many doctors say will discourage genetic testing and worsen racial health disparities. But leaving aside that very important equity issue for just a moment, they are now saying that race is not a physiological construct. All right. It's a political and social construct that is saying in a document from Joe Biden's illegitimate administration that skin color is no longer the determinant factor in race. They are edging ever closer to just simply saying racism is anything we don't agree with. The rationale for the bonus the new rules read is that, quote, It is important to acknowledge systemic racism as a root cause for differences in health outcomes between socially defined racial groups. Such premises have found a receptive ear in the Oval Office, which has taken steps to institutionalize them throughout the federal bureaucracy. Hours after his inauguration, President Joe Biden signed an executive order launching a, quote, whole of government equity agenda, end quote, one plank of which was the, quote, equitable delivery of government benefits, end quote. The new bonus scheme HHS stresses is, quote, consistent with this order. It follows a series of steps by the Biden administration to integrate anti-racism into government policy. In November, for example, the Department of Homeland Security listed diversity, equity and inclusion as one of its top two priorities ahead of cybersecurity. HHS did not immediately respond to a request for comment. And the article goes on, but why in the world is American taxpayer money going to pay doctors bonuses for forcing their staff to accept the Marxist narrative on race? Aren't we like always told about how Medicare needs more funding? They're literally using their funding to pay people to accept critical race theory into their lives. And let's see if we can get even crazier. This is from Reuters yesterday. Refugees lack COVID shots because drug makers fear lawsuits. Documents show. This is Francesco Guaracio and Panu Wong Cha Um. I think I actually got those mostly right. Tens of millions of migrants may be denied COVID-19 vaccines from a global program because some major manufacturers are worried about legal risks from harmful side effects, according to officials and internal documents from Gavi, the charity operating the program reviewed by Reuters. Nearly two years into a pandemic that has already killed more than five million people, only about seven percent of people in low income countries have received a dose. Vaccine deliveries worldwide have been delayed by production problems, hoarding by rich countries, export restrictions and red tape. Many programs have also been hampered by hesitancy among the public. The legal concerns are an additional hurdle for public health officials tackling the coronavirus, even as officials say unvaccinated people offer an ideal environment for it to mutate into new variants that threaten hard-won immunity around the world. And if you can't see that Reuters is total and complete propaganda by now, hopefully that sentence right there informed you the unvaccinated are not the cause of the mutations. The leaky vaccines are and there is no hard won immunity around the world because the vaccines have no way of conferring immunity. Many COVID-19 vaccine manufacturers have required that countries indemnify them for any adverse events suffered by individuals as a result of the vaccines, the United Nations says. Where governments are not in control, that is not possible. The concerns affect people such as those displaced by the Myanmar, Afghanistan and Ethiopian crises who are beyond the reach of national government's vaccination schemes. Well, that's interesting. What is the Myanmar crisis? A stolen election? Yes. Ethiopia? Uh uh-huh afghanistan well that's the global communists and the military industrial complex and the feckless illegitimate president for refugees migrants and asylum seekers as well as people afflicted by natural disasters or other events that put them out of reach of government help the global program known as covax created a humanitarian buffer a last resort reserve of shots to be administered by humanitarian groups Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, is a public-private partnership set up in 2000 to promote vaccination around the world. And is that another Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation associated group? Yeah. Are they talked about quite a lot in Robert F. Kennedy's book, The Real Anthony Fauci? Uh-huh. Are they the good guys? No. No. But that buffer does not have any mechanism to offer compensation. Gavi, which operates COVAX with the World Health Organization, says that where those applying for doses, mainly NGOs, can't bear legal risks, deliveries from that stockpile can only be made if vaccine makers accept liability. The companies that are willing to do so under these circumstances provide only a minority of the program's vaccines, according to people familiar with the matter and the documents written by Gavi staff for a board meeting starting... At the end of November, more than two thirds of COVAX doses have come from Pfizer and its partner BioNTech or BioNTech. I hear this said so many different ways. AstraZeneca and Moderna, Gavi says. Moderna declined to comment. AstraZeneca and Pfizer said they were in talks with Gavi, but declined to comment further. All three said they are committed to making doses available to poorer nations at relatively low prices. Pfizer said it was collaborating directly with governments in Jordan and Lebanon to donate doses for refugees. And this goes on and on. But isn't it amazing that they are worried about their liability everywhere except the places where governments have waived their liability? And how is it that their liability keeps getting waived? Well. The best way to do it is to have the people getting the shots sign away any ability to hold the vaccine makers accountable when they agreed to join the medical experiment under the EUA. And every single person in America who got vaccinated did so under the emergency use authorization. Now, a couple of months ago, I talked about this lab called Ventavia. There was a whistleblower from that lab who came out to talk about how the processes by which they were recording their data were all faulty. And it was published in the British Medical Journal, uh, BMJ. And they have just today released a response The BMJ has to the ensuing controversy. Okay, so this is an open letter from the BMJ to Mark Zuckerberg. Dear Mark Zuckerberg, we are Fiona Godley and Cameron Abbasi, editors of the BMJ, one of the world's oldest and most influential general medical journals. We are writing to raise serious concerns about the fact checking being undertaken by third party providers on behalf of Facebook slash Meta. In September, a former employee of Ventavia, a contract research company helping carry out the main Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine trial, began providing the BMJ with dozens of internal company documents, photos, audio recordings and emails. These materials revealed a host of poor clinical trial research practices occurring at Ventavia that could impact data integrity and patient safety. We also discovered that despite receiving a complaint about these problems over a year ago, the FDA did not inspect Ventavia's trial sites. The BMJ commissioned an investigative reporter to write up the story for our journal. The article was published on the 2nd of November following legal review, external peer review and subject to the BMJ's usual high level editorial oversight and review. But from November 10th, readers began reporting a variety of problems when trying to share our article. Some reported being unable to share it. Many others reported having their posts flagged with a warning about missing context. Independent fact checkers say this information could mislead people. Those trying to post the article were informed by Facebook that people who repeatedly share false information might have their posts moved lower in Facebook's newsfeed. Group administrators where the article was shared received messages from Facebook informing them that such posts were partly false. Readers were directed to a fact check performed by a Facebook contractor named Lead Stories. We find the fact check performed by Lead Stories to be inaccurate, an incompetent, and irresponsible. And they have a few bullet points about what was wrong with the fact check. It fails to provide any assertions of fact that the BMJ article got wrong. It has a nonsensical title Fact Check. The British Medical Journal did not. Revealed disqualifying and ignored reports of flaws in Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine trials. And they're right. That is nonsensical. And it is exactly opposite of what happened. The first paragraph inaccurately labels the BMJ a news blog. Okay. This is one of the top elitist medical journals in the world. And Facebook's partner fact checker lead stories called it a news blog. It contains a screenshot of our article with a stamp over it, stating flaws reviewed despite the lead stories article, not identifying anything false or untrue in the BMJ article. It published the story on its website under a URL that contains the phrase hoax alert. We have contacted lead stories, but they refuse to change anything about their article or actions that have led to Facebook flagging our article. We have also contacted Facebook directly, requesting immediate removal of the fact-checking label and any link to the Lead Stories article, thereby allowing our readers to freely share the article on your platform. There is also a wider concern that we wish to raise. We are aware that the BMJ is not the only high-quality information provider to have been affected by the incompetence of Meta's fact-checking regime. To give one other example, we would highlight the treatment by Instagram, also owned by Meta, of Cochrane the international provider of high-quality systematic reviews of the medical evidence. Rather than investing a proportion of Meta's substantial profits to help ensure the accuracy of the medical information shared through social media, you have apparently delegated responsibility to people incompetent in carrying out this crucial task. Fact-checking has been a staple of good journalism for decades. What has happened in this instance should be of concern to anyone who values and relies on such sources as the BMJ. We hope you will act swiftly specifically to correct the error relating to the BMJ's article and to review the processes that led to the error and generally to reconsider your investment in an approach to fact-checking overall. And it's amazing, isn't it, that they have finally come around to the point that all of us have been making for two years once it affected them. Before that, well, hey, push whatever agenda you like. Once they get fact-checked on their stuff, then it is a serious issue. Now, COVID in the NFL this week has been running rampant. And of course, we are told that all the professional sports leagues in America are almost entirely vaccinated, right? And they all follow very strict protocols. They are actively involved in trying to ruin their players' social lives. But none of it has worked. There's still COVID everywhere. This is from Yahoo Sports on Tuesday. The NFL has hit a COVID-19 iceberg, putting Roger Goodell's zero-tolerance policy to the test. After a 2020 season that saw COVID-19 hotspots develop in multiple organizations, the NFL hoped experience, knowledge, and a high vaccination rate would head off another spate of intense roster infections in 2021. That hope hit an iceberg this week. After setting a single day record for COVID positives across the league Monday, the Los Angeles Rams were forced to close their team facility on Tuesday while the Cleveland Browns also moved into the league's enhanced protocols after placing eight players, including four starters, onto the COVID reserve list. The NFL hit a single day high of 37 positive tests among players Monday, then rolled into Tuesday with the Rams and Browns both bracing for more positive tests. As of Tuesday, the league's COVID reserve list had ballooned to nearly 100 players, with the expectation that number will climb over the course of the week. For the Browns in particular, further tests could stress the team's ability to field a competitive team on Saturday against the Las Vegas Raiders. Not that they could anyway. (laughs) Sports joke. A game that was flexed to Saturday by the NFL several weeks ago as part of an effort to showcase matchups after the end of college football's regular season. Now it's going to highlight the league's renewed difficulty in stopping hotspots for coronavirus spread inside franchises. With the Browns already placing a sizable chunk of their active game roster on the list, it could also challenge the resolve of the league office if the spread of infection continues to spiral. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell laid down a zero-tolerance policy in the offseason when it came to outbreaks inside teams, stating that games would not be moved out of television slots in 2021, and that teams will incur potential fines in game forfeiture if they are unable to play due to the spread of COVID. No team had to forfeit in 2020, though several games were pushed back, sometimes even into midweek. And the article goes on talking about specific players and blah, blah, blah. Today there is an article on thescore.com about quarterback Baker Mayfield from the Browns Mayfield rips NFL for moving forward with Browns Raiders game amid outbreak. Baker Mayfield criticized the NFL on Thursday for not postponing the Cleveland Browns game with the Las Vegas Raiders amid the AFC North clubs COVID-19 outbreak. Mayfield is one of 20 players along with head coach Kevin Stefanski who has apparently tested positive. The quarterback accused the league of thinking primarily about its bottom line. And he tweeted at NFL, make up your damn mind on protocols, showing up and making only three teams test all so you can keep the game as scheduled to make money. Actually caring about player safety would mean delaying the game with this continuing at the rate it is. But to say you won't test vaccinated players if they don't have symptoms, then to pull this randomly. doesn't make any sense to me. Tell me if this makes sense. No test this morning, then let our team gather for practice, then show up after practice to test them. Something seems off here. And I'm hoping that Baker Mayfield is being somewhat facetious with these tweets just to point out the NFL's hypocrisy and isn't actually scared of COVID. Teams attempted not to test vaccinated asymptomatic players Thursday before the NFL Players Association stepped in. Sources told Pro Football Talk's Mike Florio. And then Pro Football Talk tweeted this out. Also, the NFLPA is currently pushing aggressively for a postponement of the Raiders Browns game on Saturday. Some in the union believe the entire season should shut down for a week. The union is concerned about player safety and game integrity. And the NFL just strengthened its protocols, which means they made everything more restrictive with a bunch of restrictions that don't actually do anything. And the NFL Players Association is probably doing what it has to do to avoid liability by claiming that player safety is on the line by playing these games. That's obviously not true. And if the vaccines worked, none of this would be a problem. So the vaccines obviously don't work. And that stuff is still, of course, part of the NFL protocol. But there's something really interesting here, right? So we're being told that this Omicron variant is out of control. It's spreading everywhere. It's even spreading to yours truly, apparently, or maybe my one test was more accurate than my other test. But if that's true and we're only on the beginning phase of the Omicron thing, then they have to anticipate it might actually get worse than this. So what happens if the NFL cancels a game at this point in the season? or cancels an entire week at this point in the season. Well, as a practical and logistical issue, that would present a lot of problems. There are only four weeks of the regular season remaining on the NFL schedule. Then there are three weeks of playoffs, and then there is a break for a week before the Super Bowl. So if anything at this point is delayed, then the schedule becomes a real problem to figure out. All the teams have already gone through their bye weeks where they are off. So, if they were to delay anything, if they were to delay one game, for instance, maybe they could play it a couple days later and do some shuffling of the schedule and get back on track by the time they need to. But if they're going to shut down multiple games or shut down an entire week, then the off week before the Super Bowl would vanish. Because the Super Bowl, with its Scheduling with everything planned around it, the television packages, all of that stuff, the ad buys, everything. You can't just move the Super Bowl. That would be an absolute worst case scenario for the NFL. And if you just canceled one week, theoretically, you wouldn't have to. But if you start canceling now and the Omicron thing accelerates, and players are getting tested and more are testing positive, and then you have to cancel things next week, the week after, the week after, well, then you're in a lot of trouble. And so it seems like what they're doing is making sure they don't set that precedent where they are going to cancel games. Because if they start that, and it gets worse, well, then they're kind of screwed. Then they might actually have to reschedule the Super Bowl. And that would be an absolute nightmare that is probably too big a financial decision for them to make and it seems like the nfl may be in a catch-22 right now because the players and the players association they're already pointing out the problems and the hypocrisy with not canceling games but if the nfl starts canceling games they might not be able to stop if this omicron thing spreads the way people are talking about it spreading now Who cares if healthy young men get Omicron? They're going to be fine. That's not the point. And fine, fine. Who cares about the NFL? Blah, blah, blah. The NFL is a major cultural institution. It doesn't matter if they have bent over to the Chinese Communist Party and the woke agenda and whatever else. I understand all that. Okay. But in terms of cultural institutions in this country, it is one of the biggest. And most significant, if NFL teams in the playoff hunt right now have to start forfeiting games and not making them up, for instance, people are going to be furious. People will notice this sort of thing. And if they go ahead with the games, people are going to realize rightly that it's all been bullshit the whole time. And these are the risks you take when you set up. Such ridiculous policies as a way of signaling your compliance. There is probably nothing that could do more to destroy the global communist COVID narrative than a very scary variant that happens to not be very scary and instead is extremely transmissible and extremely mild. If everyone gets it and everyone's just fine, Basically, the entire narrative disappears. And so what is the NFL going to do? I guess we'll see. I know what I'm going to do, and that is laugh at Roger Goodell for being such an absolute embarrassment to a once great American cultural institution. And finally, I want to highlight this piece in The Blaze from yesterday by Daniel Horowitz. The vaccines are working exactly as they were designed. He starts off with a quote from George Orwell. Some ideas are so stupid that only intellectuals believe them. There is nowhere to run or hide from the growing observations that the closer we come to universal vaccination rates in many countries, the worse the pandemic has become. We have always known that leaky vaccines have the potential to create viral enhancement, but the recent data is unmistakable. At the same time, the COVID cultists are panicking over an emerging variant that actually might be the mildest of all while mainly affecting the vaccinated. A perfect refutation to the mass vaccination push. All signs point to the need to suspend the shots and focus exclusively on monoclonal antibodies and other early treatment. Or is there an ulterior motive? At this point, we better pray that Omicron becomes dominant in the U.S. as quickly as possible. The most devastating observation of 2021 is that more people have died from COVID under the mass vaccination regime during the existing variant than before there was a single jab. According to the CDC's data table for daily death trends, there have been 127,184 COVID deaths from September 1st through November 30th this year, which is 45% greater than the 87,829 recorded deaths over the same period in 2020. And some of the deaths from this year are still lagging and likely to be updated. Man, what could be causing all of that extra death? I wonder if it has anything to do with that article we read last week about the massive study in The Lancet, where they couldn't tell the difference between COVID-19 and vaccine side effects. Huh? Typically, viruses mutate down and become less virulent. Last year, there was much less built-up immunity, we had fewer treatment options, and we had zero vaccines. It is nearly impossible to ignore the fact that narrow-spectrum leaky vaccine has made the virus much worse. During the peak of the winter wave in January, there were 19 recorded deaths for 15 to 17 year olds. In August, when the vaccines began to leak and we likely experienced vaccine mediated viral enhancement, kids got noticeably sicker. Although deaths were still very rare, there were 63 recorded deaths among that age cohort and the numbers have generally remained higher. I wonder if that has anything to do with when they started vaccinating kids but that's probably crazy. That's probably a conspiracy theory. And they were probably recording those deaths perfectly. It was probably COVID-19 that caused those kids to die, even though that never happened at all before. Mm -hmm. Imagine if we had put all the funds for the leaky shots into the monoclonal antibodies and an outpatient treatment regime built on the latest research of dozens of therapeutics that have shown promise in combating the virus. Yet rather than focus on alternatives and investigate what went wrong with the injections, our establishment leaders are doubling down, even as the failure is undeniably in plain sight. As such, it is hard to escape the sinister conclusion that they intended this all along. Consider the fact that Cornell University has an ironclad vaccine and mask mandate, yet three and a half percent of the entire campus tested positive last week alone. The school has now switched to online learning. Consider the fact that before the NFL season started, 52 of 53 players on the L.A. Rams roster were vaccinated. Now they lead the league with 11 players on the COVID list. And as we've heard, the overall NFL COVID list is quite a lot larger than that. Consider the fact that Newton, Massachusetts has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world, with 97% of the entire population vaccinated, including 99% of 12 to 15 year olds and 87% of 5 to 11 year olds. Yet despite this and indoor mask mandates, the town has more cases than this time last year and is likely headed toward a record. Consider the fact that a country like South Korea barely recorded deaths during the entire pandemic, but now has many more cases and deaths with nearly all adults vaccinated and one of the highest vaccination rates for a country that large, over 50 million. Consider the fact that England and France, both with very high vaccination rates and large prior COVID waves, have recently set case records. Likewise, Portugal, with the highest double vaxed rate in Europe, now has more cases than during the winter peak. Several months ago, a Harvard study published in the European Journal of Epidemiology, the only one to look at thousands of U.S. counties in different countries to study correlation between vaccination rates and case rates, found zero correlation. Quote, in fact, the trend line suggests a marginally positive association such that countries with higher percentage of population fully vaccinated have higher covid-19 cases per one million people, concluded the author. The establishment suggests that the shots at least provide some with temporary protection from critical illness. But what good is that if the shots actually make the virus more virulent for everyone and then offer a degree of preventive protection for its consumers while screwing everyone else? And that part actually is not apparently true at all. I don't think there is any reason to surmise that the unvaccinated are screwed in any capacity. In fact, the unvaccinated could not look more wise than they do right now. And now that I say that, I'm sure that in a month, it'll look more wise. And in 10 years, it will look incredibly wise. And people will probably wonder how any intelligent person could have made any other decision. Let's not forget that Dr. Fauci warned from day one that you need a perfect vaccine because a half-baked one runs the risk of making the virus worse. In an interview with Mark Zuckerberg last March, Fauci said in response to those who wanted rushed vaccines, If you vaccinate someone and they make an antibody response and then they get exposed and infected, does the response that you induce actually enhance the infection and make it worse? The only way you'll know that is if you do an extended study, not on volunteers, but on the public. And he went on, as I played in the clip the other day, this would not be the first time if it happened that a vaccine that looked good in initial safety actually made people worse. He continued when the Facebook CEO pressed him on rushing forward with a vaccine. A month later, Fauci warned at a press conference that, quote, the worst possible thing you could do, end quote, is vaccinate someone and create enhancement. And by the way, even considering antibody dependent enhancement will get you a Facebook fact check. You are not allowed to talk about that. Well, a year and a half later, isn't that exactly what we are seeing? Remember, the FDA warns during the initial emergency approval period that, quote, Risk of vaccine enhanced disease over time, potentially associated with waning immunity remains unknown, end quote. And that's at a time when the FDA didn't know just how badly these shots would wane or did it? Is it perhaps the intent to create the need for endless shots to fix the immune suppression and viral enhancement created by the first round, just like a heroin addict who constantly needs more poison to temporarily assuage the latest withdrawal symptoms until he descends into a death spiral? It is now universally accepted that the vaccine first suppresses your immune system, possibly for six weeks following the first shot, before it provides any protection for a few months thereafter. To encourage people to vaccinate even more while the numbers are high is the surest way of enabling more people to get the virus. This will create an endless feedback loop, driving a vicious cycle of suppressed immune systems vaccine-mediated viral enhancement, and excess mortality from both the side effects and from COVID, which in turn generates fear to pressure more boosters in the hardest-hit areas. The German state of North Rhine-Westphalia is making boosters available for people to take every four weeks. Thus, the more the shots fail, the more the makers succeed. It's no longer enough to oppose mandates. It's time to stand athwart history and yell stop to this entire vicious cycle. And I got to say, Daniel Horowitz is correct. None of the story, none of it whatsoever makes any sense. These people have been digging this hole for two years now, and they keep digging it deeper because they cannot admit they are wrong admitting they are wrong is an existential crisis for each and every one of them. And it goes way beyond what we were talking about yesterday with Vinay Prashad. He, he perceives some sort of existential crisis for himself in terms of his uh, moral worth and the way he will be viewed in the future by society, knowing that he has been part of a system that has either intentionally or unwittingly, or perhaps just as a sad effect of their desperately clinging to the party of false decorum, actively and unnecessarily harmed children with no benefit whatsoever. And all of the negative effects in clear view of everyone, and they have been the entire time, no one should have ever even considered that any of the way this was handled was a good idea. It was obviously not a good idea from the very beginning, but people lied about it because they cared about their careers and their social standing. They wanted to go along with the people who fund their work. But for others, this is a legitimate existential crisis. Forget about their careers and their reputations. That stuff is gone. There are people who should, and I think will be, put on trial for this stuff. These are crimes against humanity that we have all witnessed in the last two years. We got to stop pretending this is something other than it is. These aren't small mistakes. They're crimes against humanity and history is going to view them as such. And the people who supported that will be seen and treated the same as the people who suggested it. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm Your Moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on gab and getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your And the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the rain.